1: If you've never heard of the battles of Antietam or Shiloh, then why are you listening to this program? If you've never heard of more obscure battles like, say, Logan's Crossroads or Bristow Station, you've got plenty of interesting reading ahead. But if you've never heard of the Battle of Fort Butler at Donaldsonville, Louisiana, join the club. And put aside whatever you're doing and pay attention because you and I are going to learn all about this in the next hour from Chuck Veet, author of A Lively Little Battle New Perspectives on the Battle of Fort Butler, Donaldsonville, Louisiana, 28 June 1863. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio. VoiceAmerica.com that's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on the 19th day of January 2020 from the beautiful third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, but not representing the university or any of its constituents. Likewise, my guest speaks only for himself, as we always do here at Civil War Talk Radio. It's the winter term, spring term it's called optimistically, although it's January now, and we're a week and a half into classes here in 2022. The COVID is still raging. I've had a lot of students using the self-reporting system to tell me of their exposures or their positive tests and that is keeping them out of class but knocking on wood we are still going face-to-face with many classes. Some of my colleagues are choosing to teach online. I'm in the classroom and enjoying it and hoping uh, not to catch anything from anybody uh, fully vaccinated as I hope uh, you are and I hope my students all are. because it does seem to spread regardless and uh, that will at least lessen the effects one hopes so uh, here at Civil War Talk Radio tonight's uh, non-paying and almost certainly completely unaware sponsor of tonight's show will be Pirate Deli on 10th Street here in Greenville Uh, for many many years I would get lunch at uh, Mike's Deli across the street from the Brewster Building and Uh, Mike died many years ago. His brother Terry ran the place. Uh, Terry retired last year, and the new owners have really upped their game. It's now called Pirate Deli, and when I'm here on a Wednesday, uh, we record the show before you at 7 in the evening, so it's not time to go home and eat and come back. too busy to do that, so I now have the opportunity to go over to Pirate Deli, get half of a sandwich, and eat it before um, a couple hours before the show, and then, then maybe some finish the sandwich after the show. But uh, they're good. They're uh, they are really producing some some nice stuff there. So if you're in Greenville, uh, come and say hello at the Brewster Building, and we'll go over and get a cup of coffee at uh, Pirate Deli. We will. Uh, what else can we report on here? There. Are, so many trivial things happening. My printer no longer works in the office, got rid of it, got a new one. Somebody had cannibalized the startup cartridge out of it, so it didn't work, so I don't have that printer now. Uh, One darn thing after another. But your donations to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund will not be spent on a printer in my office. That really is the responsibility of East Carolina University and its taxpayers, uh, so we can print things like the notes for tonight's show. Uh, in better news, the most recent issue of the Journal of the Civil War Era from uh, Penn State just came out. I got my author's copy yesterday, and uh, my review essay on the common soldier in the Civil War, describing the books written about that topic in the last 50 years or more, is is in that volume, so if you're curious about that, and if you do happen to read that uh, essay, you will come across a lot of familiar book names a lot of authors that have been guests on the show and, and shared their work so it was a pleasure writing the essay and it felt like uh, sort of visiting one old friend after another uh, talking about the books that they had written in the last uh, 10 even 20 years and further back I didn't know Bell Wiley where the, the essay starts of course but uh, but after that uh, I, I was surprised how many people, who are important to Civil War historiography have have had a chance to uh, to chat with us here at Civil War Talk Radio over the first 18 seasons Uh, the upcoming shows on Civil War Talk Radio include next week John Messner uh, who has a book about a Scottish blockade runner in the American Civil War and uh, Dr. Messner will be coming to us from the UK so he'll be staying up late just to chat Uh, On February 2nd, we'll talk with Deanne Blanton, who's the founder of the Society for Women in the Civil War. She's also the co-author of They Fought Like Demons, Women Soldiers in the Civil War. And on the 9th of February, as we approach the birthday anniversary for Abraham Lincoln, we'll talk with old friend of the show, Jonathan White. John White comes back with two new books related to Lincoln, one on... uh, Uh, letters to Lincoln by African-Americans that he has collected and edited. And the second one, I'm looking around the room, I don't have a copy of it yet. Uh, I've got an electronic copy. Is uh, about African-American visitors to the White House. So similar topics, two books, and we'll talk about both of them on February 9th. If you're out and about this spring, come and join us at uh, Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours on the... This hallowed ground tour, there are openings in the second one, June 18th through June 26th, and I hope you can join us for that. And as I mentioned last week, if you're in this part of the country in the next month, uh, uh, Colonel Wade Sokolowski, U.S. Army, retired, who has written about the Battle of Wise Forks, will be leading a tour of that area. It's near Kinston, North Carolina. If you've never heard of Wise Forks, uh, it's, it's not a single battlefield, but there are a connected series of sites that he knows all about, and he'll take you to them uh, on February 18th, Friday, February 18th, 2022, from 9 to 3, a day-long tour. I think he's asking $25 to help defray costs. But if you're curious about that, send me an email I'll get you connected with the colonel and you can join that group I've gone on that tour with him in the past Dave Powell and others were were with us that day and I remember we didn't see every site because in one of the wooded areas where uh, federal forces were massing for their advance toward Goldsboro we uh, were blocked by a, a big snake lying across the forest trail and the better part of valor said, "Let's leave the snake to enjoy its nap and not try to step over it." Uh, there are copperheads in this part of the country. I found one under my grill once in the driveway. Uh, so, I suppose I could go on the tour and, and see that site, the one I didn't see. But it's a it's a weekday. I'll be here in the office. But if you if you have the leisure, contact me and go on the tour. Our guest tonight is an old friend of the show. He's been here twice before and always writes on topics that other people have not touched. And uh, that is especially true of this book titled A Lively Little Battle, New Perspectives on the Battle of Fort Butler, Donaldsonville, Louisiana, 28 June 1863. as I think I said in the introduction last week, mentioning his book, I didn't know there were any old perspectives on the Battle of Fort Butler. I didn't know anything about this uh, event until reading this really uh, fascinating analysis of a, a small but uh, surprisingly meaningful battle uh, with, that it is it's tactically interesting and strategically worthwhile and uh, just an entertaining an informative book uh, but you're not here you are not here to listen to me talk about it let's hear the author uh, Chuck are you there yes I am here Jerry thank you uh, welcome back to the show thank you very much for having me it, it's uh, good to talk to you we, we met back in I think it was 2013 at Plymouth North Carolina at a living history event and yes. uh, uh, you, are you still doing living history
3: well, not for the past year and a half, but otherwise, oh, that's
1: yes. Yeah, <laughs> uh-huh. nobody's doing it. That's a good point.
3: No, um, that's true, but yes, I am.
1: And uh, and still writing, obviously. Uh, you, you've written about uh, Navy sea stories in, in the Civil War and uh, uh, secret weapons of the Civil War. Things again that most people don't jump into. Uh, this book, uh, the Battle of Fort Butler in Donaldsonville, Louisiana. Uh, we need to get the, the audience situated. Where the heck is Donaldsonville?
3: Well, Donaldsonville is sadly known today as the, the town that Walmart killed. Um, and I'll, I'll probably get a note from their PR department, but uh, <laughs> it's 75 miles upstream from New Orleans. It's also where Walmart uh, turned around and staged all the supplies that they got into New Orleans during the hurricane Katrina. So it's... Mm-hmm. It has never been a giant town, although in the 1830s it was for a brief spell the capital of the state of Louisiana.
1: Hmm. And geographically, you said it, it's on the banks of the Mississippi River. It's also on a branch of the river. Can, can you describe the geography yes. of
3: the town? It's It's flat. Everything is flat. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've driven there, and believe me, it's, it's flat. Um, you want perspective, you have to drive over the bridge over the Mississippi. Its significance is that it used to be uh, the Army Corps of Engineers has, has changed now to a navigable body of water called Bayou La Forche. And for those of your listeners who aren't from the area, uh, our perception of Bayou as a swamp isn't exactly how the word is used. It, it comes from the local Native American Bayou, which meant a, a navigable stream. And large ships could actually navigate almost all, or uh, during the rainy season, all of uh, Bayou La Forche all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. So it was a very convenient back door into New Orleans uh, that was frequented by the pilot Jean the pirate Jean Lafitte at one point in time, because he didn't have to go and pay customs or deal with officials going through the major town. So it's, a, it's an important little junction between the, the bayou and the main river. So the uh,
1: the river is flowing in a, a easterly direction, flowing from west to east as it passes Donaldsonville. And right. Correct. Correct. It's very confusing it, on the maps. Right and and the the bayou comes out of it and goes due south on on the maps in your book
3: pretty much yeah tends to the south wiggles a little bit then heads right down right. to the gulf
1: so so at the so it's a significant body of water and you've got this town in the elbow of these two waterways mm-hmm. uh, and on the the other side of the bayou on the the that would be the left or western side uh, and south of the river that's where you have fort butler this that Fort Butler enclave. Uh, why? When was Fort Butler constructed, and
3: why? It was constructed in uh, late 1862 and into early 1863. Um, Donaldsonville was roughly the line where the Louisiana governor decided they would fall back to when Farragut took New Orleans in April of 1862. Anything below that, they sort of conceded to the Yankees, although there was a lot of guerrilla warfare. But above that. It was open season, and he basically let loose uh, guerrillas of the lowest class. That's just not my opinion. That's what people on both sides said. These guys avoided the Confederate draft by signing up to be partisan rangers, I think was the term. Mm -hmm. And they were supposed to root out unionism. Unfortunately, what they did was basically use their positions to attack their betters, let's say. They all of a sudden learned that you could attack a plantation and all its riches and its owner, if you thought he was unionist, or claimed he was unionist, and basically sacked the place. And there was no harm, no foul. So the whole area is very war-torn, if you will. If you got supplies from New Orleans, you could have your cotton burned, your plantation burned, and be taken prisoner. Uh, there are snipings and attacks on not only Union ships and uh civilian transports, but at one point in time, the guerrillas even attacked a known civilian New Orleans-based Southern crude transport that was bringing women and children from Union-occupied Baton Rouge, from a boarding school that was there, and General Butler had sent notice up and down the river from Baton Rouge South saying, this is entirely crude by Southerners. Don't fire on it. It's your women and children. Let us pass. They fired on it. Happily nobody was killed, but that's the savagery of the war that's going on. They had tried, the Union had tried to stamp out this sort of activity up and down the river, but the only way that was going to happen was by landing troops. And troops were, were stretched pretty thin between the, you know, the engagement around Vicksburg and, and, uh, occupying the towns like Baton Rouge and of course Port Hudson is, is soon to be invested. So the Navy has control of the river, quote unquote, only as far as their guns can reach and only when they're there. And as soon as they leave, the guerrillas would come right back in. Finally, they decided that rather than landing people sporadically, they would just build a fort at the junction of the La Forge and the Mississippi. And that's why Fort Butler was built.
1: So you described this uh, memorably as, as the the area, the, the Mississippi is the lengthiest battlefield of the war. That this fighting mm-hmm. is going on all up and down the river from yep. uh, from just upstream from New Orleans up to uh, to Port Hudson, which is still a Confederate bastion at this point. Uh, and every time Federal ships are going up and down, they're getting shot at. Uh, Guerrillas are, are raiding the plantations along the, the river. It's really a, a constant fight going on. So so it makes sense that there's a, a fort placed there to try to hold on to it. Yeah. Uh, before going further with the uh, description of the battle, quick note for listeners if you uh, look this book up you will see the title refers to the battle of Fort Fisher Donaldsville, Louisiana 28 June 1863 which is of course the date it happened I got an early production copy of this book which has a typo on the cover it says 28 July 1863 uh, listeners you don't—you won't be able to get one of these because uh, Chuck you say you've already corrected this in, in current volume. yeah you now you know, have right? a
3: rare book you have a rare book Exactly.
1: I can retire. I, I'm putting this up on eBay. Who wants one of a kind? Uh, well, that probably won't work. Let's take a short break. We'll come back and talk more with Chuck Feet, author of A Lively Little Battle, New Perspectives on the Battle of Fort Butler. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
2: Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety.
0: You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to Prokopovichg at ecu. dot edu. That's P R O K O P O W I C Z G at ecu. Dot edu now back to civil war talk radio
1: and welcome back to civil war talk radio i'm jerry prokopovich talking tonight with chuck Veet, author of a lively little battle new perspectives on the battle of fort butler donaldsonville louisiana 28 june 1863 so chuck we talked about why the federal forces uh, built a fort here on the river uh halfway up from or portion of the way up from Louisiana, from uh, from New Orleans through Louisiana up to Port Hudson, uh, as a base for helping to suppress uh, rebels in the area. But you point out that the there are not just uh, the, these guerrillas who are troublesome, but there are some regular Confederate forces that that really begin to threaten New Orleans itself in 1862.
3: Yes, exactly. Uh, I mean, I'm Donald knew was born. Yeah.
1: So go ahead. Go ahead. No, I, I said 62. I'm thinking in early 63, they're, they're moved.
3: Okay. When you describe Brasher's
1: yes, station. Had,
3: they had been a thorn in the side of the Navy forever. Uh, they got sniped <laughs> out around Donaldsonville especially from about 10 miles north to 30 miles south. The guerrillas and later, like you pointed out, regular Confederate forces realized that the levees made wonderful, wonderful camouflage and bulwarks uh, that they could cut a, a slight revetment in, a, an embrasure, camouflage it with brush, and basically ambush gunboats and transports as they came by and disappear before anyone could react. And so the Navy's getting sniped at. Uh, Farragut warned Donaldsonville, the Chamber of Commerce of the town fathers, that he would attack the place if this continued. And it did. So he landed Marines. They targeted one local guerrilla, Philippe Landry, didn't get him, but burned all his property and showed part of the town. And it still continued. Uh, when Confederate forces start filtering south into Louisiana, away from the siege of Vicksburg in early 1863, yeah, they start to appear as well. And this, this makes it even more savage. You're not just fighting guerrillas that might melt away, you're fighting regulars that will stand toe-to-toe in a pitched battle
1: so these these regulars if they are sufficiently successful in this the sort of hinterlands of of New Orleans uh, they they could theoretically uh, attack the city itself it it's not heavily garrisoned by this time
3: no uh, so. and they're they're secret but the reason it's a real danger I mean, we tend to dismiss it nowadays because
2: mm-hmm.
3: uh, general Dick Taylor who was tasked with going south and relieving pressure on hopefully Vicksburg, more probably Port Hudson, in 63. His job was just to draw Yankee forces away. And he runs a, a, a brilliant campaign that takes Fort Brashear down at Morgan City. He has men that basically swoop up every single union garrison between there and New Orleans, which is on the opposite bank, Northern or Eastern Bank. The problem isn't that he can actually attack the city. or that He doesn't have enough men to assault the mm-hmm. city. But the fear is that there are about 1,500 paroled Confederate soldiers in New Orleans who, I think, to quote Farragut said, might find it convenient to forget their word of honor, and there are only about 400 Union soldiers on garrison duty in New Orleans at that moment when Fort Butler is attacked. So the odds are actually reasonably in favor of, of the Confederacy. If they can get an uprising from an uprising in New Orleans and cross the river reasonably unmolested— they could have taken New Orleans back, uh, which would have been interesting. So, so this is,
1: f- for such a small battle, one that is so, so comparatively obscure, the stakes are, are really quite significant. How did you come across this
3: battle? Where Actually, did you learn I have touched this? on this twice before. In my very first book, A Dog Before a Soldier, I ran across the Navy spy. Uh, John H. Stevenson, who's an acting assistant paymaster. And Stevenson had a long history during the war of harebrained missions. And his his skippers of the several ships he was on before Princess Royal, the, the gunboat he's on in this battle, learned basically to say, you're nuts, but go ahead and try it. Because he came back with prisoners and information, saved one of his ships one time from a, a raid, an ambush. Uh, Stevenson worked unorthodox, unorthodoxly, but pretty much you know always delivered the goods one of my recent books was on him specifically it's called the paymaster and it's about john h stevenson and i detailed all his escapades and his post-war you know career and everything and then i realized there's enough new information out there that even though I've, I've touched on fort butler in more and more detail it warranted a book by itself there's only been one book dedicated to it and that's a uh, William book on the battle of fort butler but it's it's it is good as far as it goes, but he mm-hmm. had more limited information. Having written, you know, a decade or so ago, the resources weren't there, so I decided to to, to write the book about the battle.
1: So this spy, this Union sailor, uh, mm-hmm. he he, tell us about the espionage he engages in here.
3: Previously, when he had left his ship, it was always with his skipper's permission. And a couple of times he actually staged escapes where the, the crew on watch would fire, always fire wide, and make it look like he was an escaping secessionist or or rebel soldier, and he would go ashore and get information and come back and like I said, at one point in time he saved his ship from an ambush. In this case, Stevenson decides I won't wait for permission. He gets in mm. civilian clothes, goes utterly a wall, goes ashore to the fort, and runs through the gate. And of course none of the pickets have been clued in. They're they're shooting to kill. Figuring he's running from us, he's got to be an enemy. He doesn't get hit, thank goodness. But why he's done this is because the rebel scouts see this. And mm-hmm. so they figure, okay, he obviously wants to belong to us. And he said that I'm an escaped you know, southerner from New Orleans. I've been on board the gunboat. They quiz him about you know, arms, on the, you know, how many guns it has, things like that. And Stevenson figures, well, they already know all that. So he, he told them the truth. Here's how many guns mm-hmm. it has, how big it is, you know, how many crewmen, things like that. They take him into their confidence. And that evening before the battle, he, actually the evening of the battle if you want, he learns their plan, waits until they're asleep and escapes and and manages to get away with it. Rather than going south back to the fort where he figures they'll know to look for him, he heads north towards Lagos Plaquemine, and I apologize for how I'm pronouncing it. I've actually heard it (laughs) pronounced. It's a town upstream uh, where he knows there's another gunboat, the Winona, is stationed. And he makes it there. Uh, He's he's in pursuit at that time and being shot at, swims to the gunboat, presents himself to its commander, uh, Weaver, Aaron Weaver, who doesn't know him from Adam. He's bedraggled. He's in civilian clothes. And he's giving this ridiculous story about I have a rebel plan I have to get back to, you know, Garntonsville. And uh, Weaver basically... Ignores him until a passing transport is headed down to Donovanville from Baton Rouge and he puts him on the ship, sends him back down there. He gets on board the Princess Royal, uh, appears before his, his skipper, uh, Melanchthon Woolsey. Woolsey listens patiently, reads him the riot act, serves him in his head <laughs> on a platter, and then congratulates him and says, thank you. He is, uh, later after the war, advanced 15 places in the Navy hierarchy because of this episode and another 15 for things he does later on. So it is legit. And Wolsey writes him a glowing letter of accommodation. Farragut acknowledges it. So this actually all happened. With the knowledge of that plan, Wolsey sends ashore to the commander of the fort, Major Bullen of the 28th Maine, who is waffling between losing his nerve and, and, and toughing it out. He actually at one point says, can you evacuate us? Because I don't think we can withstand this attack. And Wolsey famously says, we'll surrender when they capture us. He's gonna to fight to the end. We'll see a veteran sailor. He's seen a lot of action on the eastern coast, but now armed with Stevenson's intelligence, they know exactly where the rebels will come, when the rebels will come and you know, the entire plan of attack.
1: Now, normally you'd feel pretty secure knowing that and the fort itself is, is pretty secure. It looks it's a sort of Vauban looking fortification, uh mm-hmm. facing the the west and the south and then on the north it's got the the, the berm, the uh, the levee of the Mississippi and on the eastern side it's got the levee of, of Bay La Forche, so it's it's fully enclosed and protected uh, but it doesn't have a lot of people in it.
3: No, it doesn't. Um, most of the garrisons, with the exception of the forward one down at Morgan City at Fort Basshireer, are serving as outposts for convalescence. There's a famous quote in the book where it said the climate of the south could reduce a sturdy Yankee, you know, to, to a, a wreck in three weeks. And they calculated that probably about a third of Banks' army around Port Hudson is sick at any one time, a third to a half. You bear in mind, for some reason, the government sent nothing but New Englanders down to, to you know, Louisiana. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've been there in the summer. <laughs> and living coming from Massachusetts, it's not pleasant. But that's who no. they sent down there. Not you know, not people who are acclimatized to it. So these guys are down with malaria or, you know, just the egg as they called it, a fatigue, mm-hmm. uh, the heat is getting them the humidity. They're just not used to this sort of thing. And Fort Butler is serving mostly as a convalescent camp. There was one company, Thompson's company, uh of the twenty eighth that is assigned there along with small staff. There are fragments of every other company. Some of the confusion about the battle comes from the fact that two officers, two captains from two other companies are there and they're charge of a portion of men, but it's a mishmash of men from the 28th from various companies within the regiment and basically anyone they could dragoon into staying at the fort to help defend it. At one point when they asked General Emery in New Orleans for reinforcements, You know, he said, I only have these 400 guys, but you're welcome to check in the hospitals. And if you could fog a mirror and stand, they were willing to take you. And so we have the scrapings uh, of, of all the hospitals. For instance, there's 50 guys from two regiments in Massachusetts. We know there's a squad at least of black soldiers from one of the Louisiana native guards, as they called them. Um, there's also a contingent of freedmen from a local plantation that's been led there by, uh, their manager, uh, Sergeant Pollock from Michigan. So it's a whole hodgepodge, no more than about, I'd say, 230 mostly sick men. And the great quote there was the way they decided who would do what fighting was that the sickest man would pull the lanyard on the cannon. Well, everyone else struggled to load the ball and ran it home. That's how sick these guys are. At the height of the battle, as reinforcers are rushing from one point to another, they talked about some of the fellows from New, Orleans, uh, New Hampshire, I'm sorry, dragging their muskets along the parapet to where he could get to a firing position and then firing collapses the load again. These guys are, are literally need to be in a, a bed, not fighting a battle. So the, the defenders are quite weak despite the apparent strength of the fort. They're stretched really thin.
1: So you and there's only, as you say, 219, 220, so a very small number of them. The yes. the rebels have some five regiments. They they've got ballpark of 2,000 soldiers ready to attack. Uh, so so it's a really uh, one-sided situation in in numbers. Now you mentioned there were some soldiers from uh, one of the Louisiana Native Guards regiments and some freedmen mm-hmm. from a local plantation. Uh, and you say in the book you describe how Confederates observed this, uh, supposedly some of them saw ahead of time that there were at least some uh, African American defenders of the fort, and they did not take well to that.
3: No, you have to understand again, once you strip away the the sugar coating of one hundred and fifty plus years and go back to that time. Uh, again, I quoted extensively, uh, an article from a, I think it was a Georgia newspaper about the Southern reaction to the introduction of black troops in union uniforms. And rather than quote all that, I'll, I'll remind people or tell people what had happened not too many weeks before, uh, around Port Hudson, uh, one of the, the new regiments, I want to say the first it might be the second, Louisiana, I'm sorry, I don't memorize. They attacked a rebel bastion and they suffered 75% casualties. And eyewitnesses said there were no wounded or captured because the Confederates slaughtered everyone they could. And it came down to fighting with teeth and rocks after bayonets and muskets were, you know, discarded. <laughs> it was an entirely savage fight because Southerners were absolutely infuriated beyond description that black people would dare to raise a weapon against them. And they, I think the quote said something very chilling, which is like, if we have to descend to this level, you will forgive us. And it's like, oh my God. So that, that's the nature of the battle that's coming. And I think one of the things, I'm skipping around here a little bit. Sure. In the attack, Wolsey, the skipper of the Princess Royal, says, despite the darkness, despite the fact the moon is set, despite the smoke of battle, we knew exactly where the rebels were because they wouldn't stop yelling. I really believe, this wasn't the rebel yell. People describe it as like this guttural, almost bestial war. I really had the impression, and I hinted at this in the book, that I think they believe they're just gonna frighten the garrison into submission. To this day there are still authors that will quote General Taylor's opinion, and he was not there, that the entire garrison was black troops. This is what so incensed his men to make a savage attack. The reason why I believe that he thinks that is The only officer beforehand who got close to the fort was a flag of truce officer. He sent in at four in the afternoon, the evening before the nighttime battle, which would be the 27th. Only that officer gets close enough to actually see men up on the parapet. My theory is that he saw either some of Pollock's Friedman or some members of the African Guard. During the battle, one officer, Alonzo Ridley, is captured. Ridley is not released until a month before the end of the war, and the first thing he does is write a report on the Battle of Fort Butler. Taylor gets a copy of this report, now lost, or at least I couldn't find it, from Ridley, and writes his book in the 1870s and says, oh, it's all black troops. I believe Ridley saw black troops on the parapet, assumed the entire garrison was black, reported that back to his commander, uh, Green, and that spread among his men and just infuriated them. That part's all conjecture, but it, it makes sense mm-hmm. to me anyway. It accounts for a lot of the savagery during the battle. It, it does. And the
1: uh, the battle takes place at night. Why why was this a night attack? That's so rare in the Civil War. Any, any clue why the Confederates chose to attack at night and not during the day?
3: Well, oddly enough, the Texans who were involved had launched a couple of night attacks, not usually very successful, further north. The mm-hmm. biggest reason was, uh, again, the, the biggest drawback of the Confederate plan is a lack of intelligence. They don't mm. have good data about the fort. And whoever they sent out to scout can't count worth beans or couldn't tell a transport from a gunboat because he believes Green believes there are five gunboats on station. Mm. One's gonna prove more than he can handle, but with five that's something to be, you know, considered. So a mm. night attack they can they figure will obviate the gunboat. The gunboat can't fire towards the fort. It might hit its own men. And if they go under cover of darkness and hide in the weeds Along the the coast or Batura as is called, between the levee and the river, they should be fairly secure that's why the night attack unfortunately, it takes a lot of coordination that just falls apart
1: yeah of, of the was it, is it five or six regiments that go at least
3: one of them There's doesn't
1: six. and well one of them doesn't even leave their camp they 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 don't join the attack they they, they sleep through nope. it, basically.
3: <laughs> they have no no idea why. And that you know, Lane, uh, the regimental commander, was known mm-hmm. to be quite a fighter. I think he was a Texas Ranger and all that. And they just didn't march to the sound of the gunfire. And one of the two assaulting regiments that were supposed to go on either side of the fort and breach wooden stockades along the Batur doesn't show until almost the end. Uh, they said they had guides that wouldn't lead, or someone's guide didn't show up. And it turns out by looking into that sort of thing... Confederate forces tended to impress guides without asking, mm-hmm. you know, are you pro-secessionist? Are you Unionist? Uh, they're scared out of their wits, I'm sure. And if those two guides intentionally misled the regiments, they were terribly brave men. But mm. the upshot is it totally unhinged Green's attack. It wasn't coordinated
1: at all. So the attack goes in in the middle of the night, not quite as intended. Uh, we'll take another break and come back and talk about the, the outcome of the attack. Uh, it's the attack on Fort Butler, the subject of the book, A Lively Little Battle, New Perspectives on the Battle of Fort Butler. We're talking with the author, Chuck Veet. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio.
0: that's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Chuck Veet, author of A Lively Little Battle, New Perspectives on the Battle of Fort Butler in Donaldsonville, Louisiana, this takes place on the night of 28 June, 1863. We've been talking about the preparation for the Battle the Confederates finally launch their attack. Uh, Chuck, did you do the diagrams for this book yourself, or did someone yeah, do yeah, them yeah, with yeah. you? They, they are outstanding. They really make clear what you're talking about and, and oh, good allow, I, it, it, I was able to follow along. The Confederate plan makes a lot of sense. They're going to send a couple of regiments toward the face of the fort with instructions just to fire and keep the Union guys' heads down, uh, not mm-hmm. to try to go over the, the berm and down into the ditch and back up again. They think that's suicide. They're not going to do that. But the main attack will come along the two river edges because the walls can't actually go down into the, the, the river or the bio itself. There has to be a little land space. And as you described, there's a stockade fence built from the edge of the fort Perpendicular to the fort, out to the water, nice. and they can they can defend that. As the troops are marching along the river, they come up against the stockade fence with, with Union guys behind it. But and that's where the real fighting takes place. Are they able to overwhelm those those two stockade fences and get in behind the fort?
3: The, the attack that comes closest is succeeding is along the river front. and that's mm-hmm. where uh, I think it was Denman Shannon's Texans. Uh, come up against the stockade, and they're prepared. They're the, they're the regiment that's supposed to be there. They have 10 to 15 men who are armed with axes. So mm-hmm. while everyone else keeps the Mainers' heads down, uh, there are only about 40 guys there from Maine, they went top of the parapet, and probably about 300-plus Texans. While they're volleying back and forth, the axemen go forward and start chopping away at the gate and that, that goes a little bit slow. They do finally get through. The main fellows fall back to the parapet, you know, from the trenches they had. A number of other Texans go down to the end of the stockade and wave around it. It does actually go down pretty close to the river because the water's a little high right then. But they wade around it and start swarming back up to the Batur. So suddenly there's a two-pronged rebel attack coming. Uh, what's been happening there, of course, is that Princess Royal has been able to target them because of their shouting and is, is rather rapidly thinning their ranks but they do get through the stockade and make an assault. On the other side, uh, the regiment, Hardeman's 7th, I believe, they were one of the ones who was so late to the battle, they almost played no role. And the adjoining regiment, Herbert's Texans, weren't supposed to assault the gate. They were supposed to pin down the Yankees near the gate. And I, at some point, either realizing that, oh, this isn't working, I have to stand in for, you know, my fellow, or under orders from Green or, or Colonel Major, they decide to assault the stockade on the Bayou the Force side. And it's it's well nigh suicide, because rather than attacking straight against the wall, once you're past the stockade, they have to run the length of the wall down a, this little channel, if you will, and they run up hard against the stockade, and they're not prepared. They have no axes. So they stack up against it and realize the only safe place is literally up against the stockade, duck down. Because the Yankees can fire through the loopholes and you know hit them. They can't hit the Yankees back. I think I think Captain Neal's men lose all three at that stockade. Well later on when Hardiman shows up, his men with the axes can't get near the stockade because Herbert Smith will not come out of cover. They're hugging the wall for, for dear life and they just jam up. And by that time the second gunboat has shown up, is informed of the plan and realizes, oh, it's about time they're coming up by Lafourche. And so they open up and start dropping Texans from Hardiman and Herbert's group, who finally just melt away. Oddly enough, the plan, while it strikes you at first as good, it's a function of really faulty intelligence. Mm-hmm. I believe that Green mentioned his, his eyewitnesses lived within two miles of the fort, which might mean they have never gotten close to the fort to actually look. He is told there's a ditch that's 16 feet deep. And mm-hmm. I believe he thinks that ditch means straight walls. So a man jumps down 16 feet, he can't climb back up, even though it's faced with bricks. It's going to be very tough. And a lot of people have believed that, but I actually found the plans for the fort, uh, which were were too large and and too – there wasn't enough contrast to put them in the book, but on my website Mm -hmm. there's a link to the actual plan of the fort, which I found in government archives. The plan actually shows that the sides are sloped, and while it does drop down 16 feet – You have to climb up the other side, but it's 45-degree embankments. Had you taken all your men and swarmed one wall of this fort, you probably wouldn't have lost more men than the Texans normally did, and you would have swamped the fort. The right way to approach would have been to swamp the fort from the land side. But what Green does is the best he can come up with on the spur of the moment. The biggest drawback to his plan was there was no time to really inform everyone what they're supposed to be doing when denman shannon's texans get around the stockade on the riverside he makes one assault and is wounded his second in command uh, colonel ragsdale takes command admits i have no idea what the plan is his men are sitting there thinking wait we're supposed to get through the fort which i thought we just did and meet somebody inside and that was going to be the end of the battle they don't realize they're not in the fort itself yet ragsdale leads another charge and is killed and meanwhile all this time the navy gunboat is spinning out the ranks the few remaining officers don't really know what to do. They try and rally for a third assault. They're repulsed. And when they, they break ranks and flee back to the stockade, the Navy continues to hit them all that time. Uh, this is what saves the main fellows on that, that side. So a lack of, of intelligence ahead of time. No one except the regimental commanders has any idea of the plan. No one knows what to do. It's utter confusion. And they totally misunderstood the nature of the ditch it wasn't a ditch it was a, a 45 degree walled moat that could have been swamped very easily really so so you when,
1: you could run down into it and run back up the other side it's not some yeah, you, it would take you, a little
3: climbing but it wouldn't be you know, a vertical face like climb up the side of a cliff or anything you could get up to plus where it's all bricks you could wiggle the bricks out to make handholds because at one point at one point when uh, Joe Phillips uh, in charge of the third Texas Rangers tries to lead a charge up there, he is he is killed and mm-hmm. tumbles back down. And the men resort to dislodging bricks and throwing them up at the Yankees, heaving them up over the remaining height and depth of the, the embrasure, if the, the, the stockade. I'm sorry, I'm the stockade, the wall. Mm-hmm. This lasts until they realize the Yankees are throwing the bricks back and it hurts a lot to get one in the head. So they <laughs> like, stop doing that. <laughs> Bad idea. Yeah. But yeah, I, I really think, if you look at, at assaults on other Civil War forts Built in a similar vein, uh, they're typically always just swamped with numbers from the side. It it could have worked. Um, it seems a good plan at first, but the fact that the nature of the ditch was misunderstood is what really tripped up Green's assault.
1: So they they fail there. They don't get. Uh, they don't try to send all their numbers across the ditch. The two flanking forces that go along the waterways. Break through the attempt to break through the, the wooden stockade fences uh, uh, are, are decimated by the gunboats on on the water shooting at them and and eventually the sun is going to rise the the, the night is over the battle is over uh, what kind of casualties were suffered in this battle what what numbers well, did you, you find you can't
3: believe green or or <laughs> Taylor and uh-huh. it is difficult to get to get a hard number the reason being is the Confederates had no idea how many of the men they left dead. They tried to carry a lot off. Uh they tried to get away most of their wounded. Uh Green also resorted to sort of a nasty trick. He appeared with a flag of truce in the morning asking if he could take off his wounded and and dragged out the discussion as long as he could. Because the whole time he's talking, he's gesturing to men who are still in hiding, run, they won't shoot you I with a flag of truce. And claims later that he took out know, got a hundred men away. So their their numbers a little little nebulous. We're not sure how many uh, estimates go anywhere from I think Farragut said 120 they were burying and probably about 130 prisoners, but they were still counting bodies when the day ended. So they they on the southern side it was it was a mess. On the northern side, I think they lost a whopping nine killed and 13 mm-hmm. wounded. It's an incredibly lopsided battle.
1: The the importance of prepared positions really comes through here, and also the naval gunfire support. With those two yes. things, there, yes. uh, you make an interesting point that after after the battle, the next day, the Confederates, many of them have been captured. The ones who sought shelter by going right up against the stockade wall, underneath the the Union rifle muzzles, where they couldn't be shot, uh, these guys eventually just get pulled in. They they surrender and are pulled across the wall. Um, mm-hmm the next day there's more prisoners in the fort than there are Yankees to guard them.
3: <laughs> Originally, yes, it's true. <laughs> and they have to keep rushing reinforcements over the company that has captured them because it's like, oh, I have 30 guys and I just took 60 prisoners. Yeah. The Confederates are, are totally flummoxed and, and frustrated, actually furious, that they lost the battle to so many sick men. One fellow said, I would sooner have been shot. Then surrender to this sickly bunch here. Uh, a couple of the Yankees lied to them and, when asked, you know, where are the rest of your men? Oh, they're off getting water, or though they're resting now, they're, you know, they're at the mess hall, things like that. But uh, some of the rebels caught sight of John Stevenson later on when they were transferred to the Navy ships. And Stevenson didn't say exactly what they said to him, but he said their language was unparliamentary. <laughs>
1: mm. well, they they were they recognized they were... him and knew what he'd done.
3: <laughs> They were not happy with, with the outcome of that fight. No, um, not at all. And part, partly, I can understand, it, it seems hubristic, the way the rebels mm-hmm. made the attack, uh, because I remember one Yankee said that a rebel told him, we thought we'd just walk in and, and take the place. Because mm-hmm. that's what they'd just done at Fort Brasheard down in Morgan City. They launched a surprise attack that was not bloodless, but didn't uh, take many lives, and took 2,400 Yankee prisoners. Mm-hmm. The army that attacks Donaldsonville is incredibly well-armed, well-supplied. Uh, it was a treasure trove that they captured down there at almost no cost. So they expected all the Yankees to be the same way. They had rolled up every garrison between, you know, Morgan City and Donaldsonville and expected Donaldsonville to fall just as easily, and were shocked that it didn't.
1: Now, one of the reasons you say in the book that you wrote about this was, and, and you mentioned earlier tonight, you have information, resources that, that weren't, not previously available. Uh, in particular, the the letter, uh, the the Neal letter. Can you tell us about that document?
3: Captain Neal is in charge of the Twenty Eighth Maine. He's in charge of the stockade along the Bayou Lafourche. He doesn't have his whole company with him. Uh, most of his company was in New Orleans or you know convalescent. He he has a hodgepodge of, of men from New Hampshire, Massachusetts, strays from other companies, things like that. Neal's letter I ran across in a, a tourist book about Wiscasset, Maine. I was doing a search, and up popped, you know, beautiful Wiscasset, which mm-hmm. is a nice tourist-type book. But the author mentioned this letter from Captain Edward Neal talking about Fort Butler. And, you know, pride of his hometown hero, it said, the hero or the savior of Fort Butler. So I went looking for, for that letter and traced it to the archives in the public library in Wiscasset, Maine. And the librarian there, uh, Pamela Dunning was incredibly helpful. It took us about four hours to figure out where exactly it was, it was stowed, but it was a gold mine. Here was, here was an eyewitness who wrote the day after the battle. And it's about a seven page letter to his sister Lottie. And in it, he included an eyewitness first person map of the place. Mm. It was, it was wonderful. He came through unscathed, described the close up battle, described the, the confusion of rushing reinforcements back and forth, back and forth. At one point, the fellows defending the river actually had 70 men to help repulse, but then that left, you know, Edward Neal with like 20 men. So they rushed back to help him. People are running all night long, and this is all captured uh, in the moment by Edward Neal, who somehow mustered the energy with like two hours of sleep to write a nine page letter. That it's is the map. A, uh, the plan of the fort mm-hmm. was a gold mine to find that. Yeah, that, that's As a historical
1: researcher, one, one lives for those moments when you get something uh, as on point as that. And, uh, Wiscasset is a beautiful place. My wife's family uh, had lived in Bath, Maine, just on the other side of the Kennebec River from Wiscasset, and have uh, been up there many times. Very nice place. Uh, the... Uh, the evidence that you provide through this book is is just uh, you know it's very thorough. you you explain where you're getting your your data and uh, when you're making a conjecture and what it's based on. Uh, it is self-published. Have you ever thought of of taking your work uh, to an established publisher?
3: I' have thought about it. My wife has sometimes counseled that. My problem with that is that, I really don't want an editor messing with stuff. <laughs> uh. <laughs> and, well, it's not—it's not, it's not just—it's just not personal pride. But for instance, with the rocket torpedo book,
2: mm-hmm. and this,
3: this is going to sound, you know, like I have a big ego, which I really don't. But what editor would know what I was talking about sufficiently to correct things about the rocket torpedo? I'm the first one to talk about it, or the Navy submarine alligator. I mean I, I, I welcome criticisms on my book uh, I don't care in five ten years or two months I'm with a chuck full of beans here I here's how I interpret it but I, I want to get the story out there the way I researched it and wrote it and if someone wants to critique it or change it that that's fine but I I don't really want to involve an editor per se I want control of it plus the nice thing about self publishing is as we learned with your rare book copy you have now <laughs> if I do decide to change something uh I don't have to buy a hundred copies of the book or they don't print a thousand copies. If tomorrow someone writes me and says, Oh, by the way, you know, here's what I find. I actually been touch with a fellow in the Pacific Northwest who wrote in immediately because I notified civil war roundtables about this book. He said, Oh, my ancestor was there. I have a tin type of him. If I get one or two more edits to this research, I'll include that tin type and all I have to do is it, upload a new file and if you order it two minutes after I upload the new file you get the new copy of the new book there's well, no it, stock the book there's a digital it, file
1: it, it, the, it's the way the world is changing uh, listeners you will enjoy this book it is it's a, a tactical gem of a story uh, a Lively Little Battle, New Perspectives on the Battle of Fort Butler, Donaldsonville, Louisiana, 28 June, 1863, by Chuck Veet. It is self-published. Look up the author's name. Look up the, uh, the, the book's title, and, and you'll find it that way. Uh, and I know you'll enjoy it, uh, just as I've enjoyed talking with you tonight, Chuck. Thanks so much for being on the show.
3: Thank you very much.
1: And listeners, as always, thanks for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.